trail and ultra runners what is going on what's happening welcome to another episode of the coop cast as always i am your humble host coach jason coop and this episode of the podcast is going to get right to the very heart of some of the things that you should be thinking about as you are planning out your season for 2023 and as you are thinking about the training that is going to support the races that you have on the calendar. I know many of the listeners of this podcast, we've just gone through the big lottery season and calendars are starting to shape up and we are starting to think about what we want to do from a training perspective. And so in order to offer up a little bit of a lens into that process, I wanted to have a conversation with a couple of our most experienced coaches that have gone through many seasons of coaching with their athletes and see what they are doing differently in 2023 compared to 2022 and how you can apply that to your training. On the podcast today, we have two of the coaches that I've worked with for some of the longest period of time, and that is Darcy Murphy and AJW. And we talk about what we are going to change within our own coaching practice to the benefit of our athletes and regardless of whether you are coached a coached athlete or not if you are arranging your training all by yourself you can take some information from this podcast in terms of how to think about the training that you want to do for next year so listen up folks if you're in the planning process this podcast is for you with that as a backdrop i am getting out of the way here's my conversation with coaches darcy murphy and ajw Who wants to go first, or do you guys want to paper rock scissors for it? Uh, ladies first. Ladies first. Darcy goes first. Okay. Darcy, yeah. okay with that? Yeah. Okay. So the construction is is we always go through these reflections, right, every single year mm-hmm. of what we did good and what we did bad, and hopefully the the balance is more on the good side, the bad side. But um, uh, I always find something every year that I want to do differently. And I thought it would be a good exercise for us to go over this publicly. And hopefully there's something that the listeners can can take from it. So, Darcy, you can kick us all off. And then Andy and I will bat it around for a little bit. What are you going to do different with your athletes next year? And more importantly for the audience, like why are you going to make that change? Uh, This is a topic that was really exciting to me. I've kind of already started on it. Um, before you brought this up, a theme that was really reoccurring this year to me in a good number of my athletes was perfectionism or perfectionist tendencies. It's a little esoteric, a little less scientific. Um, but I saw it more frequently. I feel like than normal, I don't know if COVID had some effect on it. Um, but I'm committed this next year to, Uh, calling my athletes out when I see it, especially when I feel like it's inhibiting their training and or performance. Um, I feel like it can definitely be a tool to be used advantageously, but a lot of times, and again, especially this year, for whatever reason, I saw athletes struggling with perfectionism in wanting to execute their workouts perfectly. So sometimes not even attempting said workout and it would bleed over into other areas of their life. I had a conversation with wonderful lady, a wonderful athlete. Um, Her house must be perfectly clean before she heads out the door for her workout. Oh, so even like things Uh, outside of the workout. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And a hundred percent I'll own. This is beyond my scope of practice. I'm not a, a psychologist or a clinical therapist in extreme cases. I don't hesitate for a second to refer them to a therapist when I think that it's appropriate. Um, but I realized, oh, this is why you're only getting 30% of your workouts in is because you have this like perfectionist thing that's not even directly related to training. Mm. How can we address that so that you can get out the door just to be more consistent in your training? So the things and that that's extend, just one example of, so it extends outside the scope of, hey, you got to go do this workout. That's the that's yep. the extension of the scope that you're mentioning. Yeah. Wow. I saw, I saw quite a bit more this past year, um, of athletes for the listeners on the podcast know, probably know that we use training peaks for our workout, uh, as our workout platform and, uh, the, uh, you know, the green, the yellow, red coding of the, of the workouts. I had an unusually large number of athletes this year. It's related to that Darcy who were just really angry if they weren't all green you know, to the extent that they'd be, you know, texting me to ask me to, to change things around and pair them so that they come up green. And, and with a couple of athletes, I actually was like, okay, I'm going to turn the colors off. You know, <laughs> Well, you know, you can change the tolerance too, right? You can not only change what the color cue is. So whether it's, you can make it go off of the total amount of time, you can make it go off of the intensity, you can make it go off of the TSS score, you can make it go off of mileage, if that's the prescription, you can kind of pick and choose whatever the the, the cue is, but you, you can also determine the green, yellow, amber, and red tolerances, so to speak. So whether it's 20% of the total or 50% of the total or 80% of the total or whatever it is in those categories, you can kind of, you can, you can tune those and almost no athlete actually understands that. Like the ones that are really into their training that are really into training peaks, they'll go in and monkey with it. But Andy, you're absolutely right. People get kind of obsessed with the color coding and a, they don't even know where it comes from. That's the first thing, right? We're like what, what generates a green day versus a red day is it 80 percent of the volume or is it you know i did all the intervals or did i just log in you know <laughs> like does that generate the green day or not right. <laughs> and then, and then they get mad when the color when the color coding actually comes up but first you need to understand this is where this comes from and this is why you have these and should we tune these or not specifically based on your situation or your personality <laughs> but i get the same thing yeah yeah so, so this is really interesting to start out with this because we're starting something, like you said, that's could be considered outside of a scope of practice. First off, did you notice an increase in this over the past couple of years, like a deliberate increase in this? Or do you think your athletes were increasing this behavior over the last couple of years? Or is it just something that you noticed? Probably both. Uh, I think I've tuned into it a little bit more for a variety of reasons. Um, and I think certain occupations lend themselves toward perfectionist tendencies, mm. i.e. surgeons. Mm. Um, so I have a new athlete um, that I recently took on. She's a surgeon. And I mentioned the word perfectionism to her and she gave me a knowing laugh. Like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is something. Um, and it, I, I broached the subject not as like this is a, a fault of yours. This is something to be aware of. Um, recognize if and when it has an effect on you, how to identify it, 
what the outcome is, and then beyond that, develop tools uh, for using it to your advantage and not letting it hinder you from getting out the door, from trying. Right. Even if that means you fail, try. Yeah. So. You see that a lot. So you have an hour and a half prescribed and they only have 45 minutes of time. So they automatically kind of throw the workout away because they can't complete the hour and a half. Or even if it's an hour and 15 minutes versus an hour and a half. And I, I'm completely on board with you. Another way that this actually, we see like the outward manifestation of this is it's kind of inherent. It's inherently tied to just the nature of trail running where we don't have a very good way of precisely defining the intensity spectrum. So we use this RPE scale, which everybody gets tripped up on, but the people who are more concerned about precision or perfection get more hung up on it. A, because there's only 10 rungs and those aren't very granular, right? Those are pretty thick, you know, uh, bandwidths of intensity, but B, if they come from like a track background where they can, or a marathon or a marathon running background where they can very precisely dial in their intensity via pace, or even a cycling background where you have like, you know, these crazy systems where they have like 20 different power ranges, Andy, kind of like your sons are probably experiencing right now with their power meters. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it becomes like a, it just kind of another extension of this this desire or need or difficulty to actually let go of that level of precision and granularity with things because it's just a it's impractical but b i've always maintained the i've always maintained the opinion that even when you can dial in intensity that 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 uh precisely your body still doesn't know the difference even with a cyclist your body doesn't know the difference between 210 watts and 205 watts like that's that's immaterial just get it freaking close so for ours, like if you just get seven or eight, just get it close anywhere in between there. Four, no, 10, no, seven or eight. Like just kind of get it that mm -hmm. close. And some people just have a hard time wrapping their head around the fact that that level of imprecision is actually effective. That's the hard part of translation. And so to your point of, of perfectionism, it's the same thing on volume, whatever other component that you're actually trying to relay to the athlete. Yeah, I, I kind of did a <clears throat> quick Google search trying to understand what like the clinical definition of perfectionism in is in the uh, world of psychology. Uh, and this article that I skimmed through explained that a true perfectionist will set high standards for themselves. If they meet that standard, they interpret that standard as being uh, too low. So even when they do achieve their perfect goal they'll set it higher the next time um so there <laughs> there really is no such thing as perfect in my opinion and for those that are trying to to be perfect to execute perfectionism uh the rabbit goes just a bit further once you catch it yeah. you never really arrive i'm all about continuing to challenge yourself that's largely what this is right set a challenge uh work hard can you achieve it but that's different than um never truly achieving what you set out to accomplish 
I think, uh, Darcy, I love your the, your comment about the surgeon. I'd put a couple others in there. Uh, I've got a handful of retired military, uh, and they are determined to, uh, you know, get it perfectly, get it exactly right. Uh, and then these sort of engineer types, uh, especially who, who geek around in, with uh, training stress score and things like that. So I think, I think we get a fair number of those people that come into ultra running at first because it's like laid back and cool and it's trail. And, and yet there, ultimately there's those true colors comes that come out and that perfectionist tendency is there. And, and it's a big part of our job and tempering that that perfectionist tendency while at the same time, it's nice to know that, you know, you put it on the schedule and they're going to do it right. You know, they're going to, they're going to do it at 10 at night if they have to. So I think it's, we want to walk that line of, uh, of too much and not enough. I think your first point about if they can't do it perfectly, they don't do it at all is a, is a, is can be an added challenge uh, for us to work with. Right. But I do think those athletes that if it's out there, they're probably going to do it. I think those are the individuals that have figured out how to make it work for them. They're the individuals that have created the whole race planning spreadsheet. They send it to me. I make a few suggestions. We're good. Um, So yeah, it's, it's just like anything. It can, can be twisted and manipulated to, to be advantageous ultimately. You know, I, so here, here's an interesting distinction point for, for, for coaching and coaches that can sometimes be hard to figure out. So a lot of times we want to put the, the onus on missing a workout or something like that and being a perfectionist or you're trying to be overly perfect or, or whatever, trying to make it overly precise. And that absolutely does happen. And I completely agree with there is some carryover within people who have a work life that is more dependent upon precision or perfectionisms. Surgeons, accountants are the ones that, you know, always come to mind for, for me because they have to have the books balance or otherwise, you know, it just kind of drives them crazy. It's the same thing. They have to have, you know, 75 minutes on the calendar and actually do exactly 75 minutes. Otherwise it's not balanced. But some, but, but sometimes honestly, I think that the there can also be an error that we shouldn't conflate with with these two and the athlete just isn't giving themselves enough time or allowing enough space for the workouts. So it's not the fact that they're trying to make it perfect, it's just that everything else going on around their lives, they're not organizing correctly in order to set their workout up for success. And so whenever I see this a lot, so Darcy, like the way that you see it in, you know, an athlete calendar is a lot of red days or they're skipping a lot of days. And then you start to dig into it and you're like, well, you know, I had 90 minutes scheduled and I really only had 30 minutes and I didn't feel like it was blah, 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 blah. Then you, you then, then have to decide, well, are they just trying to make things too perfect or are there other things going on around in their lives that they're not correctly organizing or prioritizing based on the goals that they put out? Is there a discrepancy between the goals that they put out there for themselves and the priority that they're putting on the workout. And that's that part of social coaching that everybody is, you know, constantly trying to figure out with every single athlete. And the reason why we don't just huck static training programs out there, because all of that stuff can be completely tailored to the level of the individual in terms of how to figure out what's going to work for them. Yeah. It kind of veers into the life 
life coaching <laughs> realm sometimes but that that's okay i mean we know we wear a lot of hats that's what makes this challenging and fun and rewarding in for me so Darcy, do you coach across a few different sport groups do you find any like tendencies with one or the other in this area i'm kind of curious about that uh no it doesn't seem to like stand out i think um athletes do more sports tend to be uh, lower on the perfectionist scale. Like if they're riding and skiing and running, kind of doing a lot of different things, uh, those are the athletes that aren't overly caught up in doing things perfectly. Whereas the athlete that only cycles and has a power meter on all four bikes, that <laughs> might be their <laughs> I, I honestly like I'll raise my hand. I've had a hard time as a coach sometimes moving back and forth with the sport groups because of this like you're calling a perfectionism, but I'm making an extension of that and just calling it like the level of the the level of precision that you can apply. So when I'm looking at applying workouts to a triathlete or to a cyclist, I use a different level of precision within that prescription, both on the fundamental volume and intensity side of things versus a trail runner. I can give, I need to give them a little bit of bandwidth because you know, the loop that they take that they do might take them 75 minutes or 85 minutes, just depending upon, is it muddy or not? Do they want to go up this hill a little bit harder, kind of any number of different factors. And it's just less kind of less controllable. And I've certainly made that mistake as a coach and not recognizing that those levels of imprecision kind of exist. And I've also done it in both directions, right? Where I've been too imprecise on the cycling and triathlon side and overly precise on the trail running side. And I, I think that, that coaches that are working within those multitude of sport groups, it, it's, it's a difficult point of consideration because what you want to do is you want to take your tendencies of your primary sport group and apply them to the novel one. So for me, it would be taking the imprecision of trail running and trying to apply that to cycling or triathlon, which is normally the era that, you know, that, that I've made over the past few years when I've been in, uh, when I've been in that situation, it's not an easy one. Cause just like we were talking about, you know, the, the accountant, the accountant or the surgeon who wants to take their level of perfection into their sport, right. Their normal life is, has a lot has a high degree of precision or perfection they want to take it into the things that are novel in their life which is their training it's the same thing with us right i want to take something that i do routinely from a work perspective and apply it in something that's slightly unique or novel and it's just a hard thing to wrap your head around because you get it so in the routine of things do you guys ever uh give your athletes a range of volume or uh whatever so they can uh feel like they're accomplishing. I'll, oftentimes I'll give my, my athletes hour to an hour and a half run adjust based on energy or surface conditions, especially now that we're in winter um, with the understanding that this is our goal for the week. We want to reach eight to nine hours total of running, et cetera. So they can kind of adapt on the fly. That is I, a I trust my, my more veteran athletes with that. That's so, so I think that that's a, this is why I wanted our uh, more experienced coaches on this call, because I think that that is uh, that that's a high level. Uh, that's a high level coaching thought and one that only comes with a lot of experience like the three of us have here. So do you intentionally prescribe a range an hour and a half to two hours knowing that the athlete can get anywhere in between there or 
you prescribe an hour, 45 minutes and just tell them that your buffer is 15 minutes on either side. Functionally, those are the same, but those are two really different communication propositions to, to, depending upon the athlete. And I deploy both of those. Like, cause I know my surgeons and my accountants and my engineers and things like that. They want an hour for they they want they, they want a level of prescription in the precision right and it doesn't matter how imprecise i tell them to go about it they're still going to try to get it they're going to be the ones that run around their car you know at the end of the run trying to get everything rounded up to the you know to the nearest tenth of a mile or second or whatever and so i try to play to that personality as much as as much as pragmatic as long as it doesn't detract from the kind of from the overall workout but the the answer darcy is i do both but everybody out, and I want to hear Andy's thoughts on this as well. Everybody out there needs to understand, though, that if you're plus or minus 10%, it kind of comes out in the wash. Anything more than that, then you can sort of debate on, yeah, it's more functional over here or more functional over there. But to plus or minus 10%, as long as it's not all plus 10% or all minus 10%, as long as there's a balance of going over here and going under there. All that stuff kind of comes out in the wash. So I, for, for most people, I don't get too, too sticky about it. I actually don't prescribe the range. I, I do coop in your two models. I do the second one. I put an hour and 45 on there and then the, the, the athlete knows that they're going to have that back and forth. And, and part of the reason is kind of Darcy started to touch on it, looking at that overall weekly volume or monthly volume. I think for an athlete to keep that big picture view, right. I, I'm sure you guys often get an athlete, let's say they're doing a, you know, a classic three by 10 tempo and, they run out of time and they cut short their, their cool down or whatever. And the overall time then is, you know, eight to 10% less or something. And if they're an accountant or a, a surgeon, they're going to try and make up that 10%, like in the next day's recovery run or something like that. But I like to have that specific number as, as much for me, actually, yes. as for the athlete, knowing, knowing that to Darcy's point, they may end up doing the range, but for me in, in kind of managing that overall athletes training load, um, I like to have that specific number. Then I can look at my athlete roster, right? And I would, I will know, you know, the artists versus the scientists and who's going to be caught up in, you know, not going exactly an hour and 45 and who's going to be okay with it. So I, I think it's, I think the range piece is something in, if you if you work with your athletes long enough and you've had those experiences where they're not able to hit that number, you're able to kind of talk through it. Um, but I, I go with the second one most of the time. Uh, I, I think that's a perfectly reasonable way to do it. I'll give you, I'll give you guys a little bit of an anecdote that Andy don't think that this is related to that, that I'm picking on you, but uh, it's with a mutual colleague of ours that Darcy and I just happened to know for a, a long time and who's been on this podcast before it's Lindsay Golich. She was a, she's a great triathlon coach and now she's the, she's the, one of the head physiologists over at the U S training Olympic training center. And it used to drive her bonkers when she was managing and mentoring coaches that got that, that gave a range for the workouts. Like it would drive her crazy because she always felt that the coach should be the boss. And that's what she'd tell all these younger coaches. Like you need to be the boss. You need to be the 
kind of the authority figure. So if you want them to do something, tell them exactly what you want them to do. If you want them to run eight minute pace, tell them it's eight minute pace. Sure, you can give a little bit of a range on it, but if you want them to do two hours, tell them to do two hours. Like you need to be the boss. And where that emanated from, and she would not mind me telling the story because we've had many, many, many conversations about this. The primary, the primary situation around where that emanated from is that she was a young female triathlon coach in a male dominated kind of ecosystem. She coached a lot of alpha males. I mean, the people who are coming into triathlon are these like CEO level 45, 55 year old, very successful dudes. And she always had, I, and I felt that she always had kind of an extra burden to overcome being a young, smart, intelligent, incredibly good coach. But as a female, she had a little bit of a authoritative burden to overcome and one of the ways that she overcame that was being extremely precise with the prescription on things and not giving much of a, she'd given a range on the intensity side, but on the volume side, it was like, I want you to do two hours. If I see an hour and 55 minutes, like that was part of like the whip that she cracked and the hammer that she kind of brought down. And it was very effective for her. And I, I watched that evolved over, you know, maybe, maybe a decade or so. So this whole conversation is interesting because the social backdrop of how coaches choose to manage the prescription of their, uh, of their athletes. I do think to Andy's point of prescribing things very precisely contrasted with why Lindsay would do it being quite different. It is a deliberate choice, right? You can't just always give the range or always give the prescription. You need to under, or you can't, you can't do that. You just need to understand why you're actually doing it and what the potential kind of like ramifications of it actually are. Cause that's like, in my opinion, those types of things are like high level coaching because you're thinking about not just, do I need two or two and a half hours to create X, Y, Z workload, you're, you're also concerned with how you're presenting that to the athlete and how they are going to react to that presentation, which in many cases, if not most, is more impactful than the actual two hours of workload itself. Like if they feel that they're getting benefit mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. it and they react from it, that's going to be your bigger kind of tool in the toolbox. This conversation, I know how this is going to go. We're going to go from general to specific. So we're going to do Andy next because I have something really specific. <laughs> I had a couple things laid well, out, but I, but, I, but I was going to choose based on how the conversation went. So before we go on, though, is there do do are there any wrap up points with this one? I think that was a good one, Darcy, and something that a lot of people noticed. Just like, yeah, for sure. Um, what I want the audience to know, I made a list of like four or five bullet points to help identify perfectionism, and I can go through those really quick if there's do time. It. Yeah, do it. I'll just like list them off. Number one is the obvious. If it's having a negative outcome on your training or performance, um, identify that at the top of the list. Um, if you're a perfectionist in all things, that can be a clue. Uh, if you're an all or nothing person, um, craving approval can be one. Uh, if feedback makes you defensive uh, or you're highly critical of others, you may be a perfectionist. Uh, if you tend to be a procrastinator or you're full of guilt, um, those are some, some of the clues that you may be a perfectionist. So for the audience listening, um, if one or two or three of those ring really true to you, again, there's nothing wrong. It's just 
something is there and what's the outcome of those. What about if your aid station splits for your next hundred mile race pacing are to the second? <laughs> We've seen that. If people come in, I'm going to be gonna here fail. at one hour and 54 minutes and 30 seconds. Like, whoa, that's like, you, you're going to control a lot of variables over the course of those 20 kilometers of trail with other people around you. <laughs> yes. And I'm going to sit in this chair for 45 seconds and eat, <laughs> and eat two pierogies and a grilled cheese sandwich. <laughs> and just throw that, throw that precision out the window. All right. All right. Let's move on. Andy, you're next, man. Uh, Darcy, I think, by the way, that's a great, I know you've been writing some great articles uh, in the Trainwright uh, website. That's a great one yeah, uh, for the future. Uh, put, a, put a placeholder on that, the, the five signs that you might be a perfectionist. So, so mine's going to come, mine's coming down to architect, training architecture. And um, this is something we've talked about as a coaching group um, multiple years. And it's something that is, is proven effective. And this is the time of year. And I think you all, any, any coach on this is in any athlete on this is really, this is the time of year where we're thinking about, okay, what's our big, what's our big goal for 2023. And for a variety of reasons in my group of athletes, I've got, Big goal athletes who are typically traveling a fair distance from their home area to do uh, an event maybe for the first time. Western States and Tahoe 200 uh, come to mind as two that there's a fair number of people that are going to those environments for literally the first time. They live in the East Coast or the Southeast, and we're building the architecture up to those events. So my doing differently is not so much doing something I've never done before, but insisting, absolutely, ins talk about I'm the boss, insisting on this approach rather than saying it would be a good idea mm. to do this. And that is, and that is the multi-day training camp. Uh. The whether, whether it's the specific I want you to travel to Western States to do the three Memorial Day training camp, or I want you to build in your life three to four days where you can focus on simulating the Tahoe 200 course or, you know, travel out like you did, Coop, travel down to Arizona and run sections of the Cocodona course. It, I'm not insisting that it be on the course, but if you, I've got a, a, a an athlete, I'm not going to use her name, very, very good runner, runs a lot, lives in Pittsburgh and is running the Tahoe 200, is worried about sleep deprivation and, and so on and so forth, runs a lot of 100 milers, but as we all know, 200 milers is a totally different ball game. The training camp, and we've talked a lot about the training camp, whether it's the do-it-yourself training camp, whether it's working with, a, with three or four friends and traveling somewhere, but this notion of like live, eat, sleep, breathe training for two, three, four days, I think to, to our point about prescribing a range in a, in a training camp weekend, I'm perfectly cool with a range. Hey, yeah. six to eight hours, yeah. just be out there, yeah. get, you know, get to the top of this peak, do this section of the course, whatever. I've, for the last several years, I've put these on the calendars and it's been a nice to have. And so in the doing it differently, 
this year, as I'm going through everybody, you know, I'm looking for Tahoe. I'm looking for Western states. I'm, I'm ready to, you know, I'm, even something like Havelina, which is a little further away. I'm saying find those three to four days right now. Let's get them more or less on the calendar. Let's talk about them as if, as if it's a race uh, and let's make that work. And the re- and basically the reason is in these last two to three years, I've seen a much higher level of success, however you measure success, achieving your goal, you know, going beyond your goal, not DNFing, being able to manage nutrition and gear and all of those race day things by having done these training camps. Um, so again, it's not something I've never done before, but the insisting on it is something that, you know, I'm having those conversations right now. That's super impactful. Like the fact that, I mean, or that's not the right word I want to use. I think the fact that you're being the boss on that, right. You're saying it's a non-negotiable piece. It says a lot about how impactful those actually are. Like there are very few things that we're going to say as coaches, you absolutely have to do this. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you're saying that that's one, like you absolutely have to run, that's probably one, right. You absolutely have to have some fuel and some fluids. That's probably, you know, we're we're in a sport where you're going to have to carry some of those things around. If you're saying that, that you're putting like a similar, if not that exact same height of importance on doing a training camp or training camps in preparation for event. I think that that says a lot about what you feel about the kind of the efficacy of those. Well, and, and it's come out of sort of our, our unscientific work as a group of coaches where when we get together and we talk, especially when we do post uh, postmortems on races and, you know, a coach talks through their, their architecture with an athlete and says, Oh, and then we did a four day training camp, you know, somewhere where they were able to mimic the elevation gain because because they live in Florida and they're running Leadville or something like that. I mean, we now have enough data, you know, again, it's not scientific per se, but we now have enough data to say this works and and it works for most people and and not doing it sometimes doesn't work. <laughs> and so I, I just felt I, I've just felt like and I mean, you, you know, it was a couple of years ago, Coop, you wrote about it. But yeah. I mean, I think we can all think of athletes, particularly those athletes who come from play, come who live in environments and run most of the time in places that are not at all like where they're going to do their target event. I think that's a key component. And as we've proven, especially you, Coop, you don't need that much. Like three or four days of that live, eat, sleep, breathing and getting the vertical and working with if if you if you're going to race with poles or you're going to have a big heavy pack or whatever the case may be, just that that dose sometimes does the trick. And so I'm insisting on it this in 2023. <laughs> so, so I'm going to, I'm going to take this part part to be a little bit incestuous and point the listeners to a podcast that Andy and Ryan was anybody else on that podcast, Andy? I don't want to, I don't want to leave them out where we talked I about think the camp. That piece. Was, yeah. I think that was the three of us. Okay. Yeah. So I'll link that up in the show notes. You guys check that out and it, it'll give people a, a very clear direction on some of the structure that Andy was talking about because we pinned that down. Uh, we tried to pin that, pin that down a lot in terms of when, how much, how many days, how much you should increase your volume, volume and things like that. All the mechanical pieces that people have uh, questions on. If you, if you want to reference that as, in terms of how we do it as coaches, I think that that's a really good, that's a really good resource. 
um, that, that, you know, I think that was what I changed last year. I mean, I, I, once again, I can't agree more to, I want to ping off of it a little bit and kind of move from the science to the anecdote. So I would say there's, there's fairly clear evidence that whenever you concentrate a training stress, you get more out of that training stress when you look at it compared to an ISO work situation. Meaning if you take 40, 40 miles a week, we'll do it in miles per week because a lot of listeners will be used to that. Take 40 miles per week and you do that every single week for four weeks. And you take another athlete that does 60 miles per week one week and then 20 the next and then 60 the next and then 20 the next. That average is still going to be 40, but the second athlete is probably going to improve more because of that concentration workload. You see that. You also see that come out in interval training, all the Scandinavian research, and I'll link this up in the show notes as well where they take interval workouts and they pool them into a smaller period of time. And there's been any number of, of permutations of this, you know, across sports science literature, but the sum total of it is, is when you take 10 workouts, 15 workouts or whatever, and you concentrate them in a shorter, in a, in a kind of a smaller area of time or shorter period of time, those are going to have an outsized effect as, com- as compared if you peanut butter spread that, that, that literature. So that's the science piece of it. Then you take the anecdote and a lot of the anecdote is actually driven from the scientific process. So it, and it's primarily driven from when we would bring people out to altitude camps, which has been done ad nauseum, right? Going all the way back to the Mexico City Olympics, where altitude training became mm-hmm. one of the kind of critical interventions or thought we thought that it was a critical intervention. And everybody started doing it and everybody started improving from these altitude camps. Well, then what started to happen is, is the physiologist started to be able to tease apart the physiology from actual, the actual performance. And there wasn't as clear of a link between the actual altitude intervention and the performance that they were actually getting on the, on the tail end of it. And so what it led a lot of coaches and practitioners to believe is that it wasn't the altitude per se that was causing, that was the stimulus for the improvement, it was putting them in the environment. Because as you can imagine, the way that they would do this is they would take a pool of athletes, and they did this right around the corner from me in Colorado Springs. They'd take a pool of athletes and they'd relocate them to Woodland Park, Colorado, which is like at 7,500 feet or something like that. They would have them eat, sleep, run, eat, sleep, train, sometimes they're triathletes, eat, sleep, ride, sometimes they're cyclists. In that isolated 8,000 foot natural environment, they'd bring them back down to Colorado Springs or to Pueblo so they could kind of train in a lower, uh, lower altitude environment. But the point is, is they were in a training camp, right? They didn't have a lot of the external stimuli to deal with work, life, kids, you know, whatever it is for that, that for kind of that mix of people. So it led those, those physiologists and the coaches to appreciate that the training camp environment may be the, or certainly a bigger stimulus for adaptation than the actual altitude intervention itself. And you clearly see that in practice where these altitude camps were highly favorable in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, and maybe late 2000s, almost de facto, where you know you used a tent or you went to an altitude camp or whatever. And they started to kind of fall out of favor in part because we started recognizing that some of the improvement was coming from the camp environment itself and some maybe coming from the actual uh, uh, kind of kind of the actual altitude. Then you pair that 
with just like even this is removing it one step further from the scientific process. Darcy and, and AJW have seen our camps unfold in real time and people can just do three or four times the volume that they do in a normal situation. And not only that, they handle it really well. And you would look at that as a coach. If any one of our coaches put up a training program in Training Peaks and we're all to scrutinize it and we see a three to four X increase over a three period over, over a three day period, we would all say the same thing. You're going to kill that athlete. Like they're there. Yeah. That, that is not does not tenable. But if you add the backdrop of, oh, it's a training camp. Right. And this is what they're doing in order to kind of orchestrate their lives around that training camp. Then we kind of look at it and go, man, okay, yeah, we've seen it a hundred times before in our athletes. Mm-hmm. The final leg, and this is getting the furthest part into it's not really anecdote because I see it so like there's just like a lot of people that observe it, right? It's observation at this point. Is that to Andy's one of the points that Andy made, the the adaptation, the improvement that you make is outside is outsized compared to the amount of work that they actually do. So not only are they doing three or four X of the actual volume is that they're probably getting five X of the improvement out of that volume somehow or another, whether it's because, you know, you you guys know how it works out when we did the Memorial day camp here after the run, everybody would hang out. And that seems like a simple you know, happening, we'd hang out in the front yard and, you know, play with the dog and some people to put the Norma Tech boots on. But what's more important is what they're not doing. They're not scrambling around to their next board beating and picking the kids up from soccer practice and, you know, taking a shower in five minutes and brushing their teeth at the same time and slamming down a, you know, recovery shake on the way out the door to, you know, do, do whatever that haphazard and kind of rushed lifestyle that we all have to live in order to train 15 hours a week or whatever it is. You don't have to do that at the camp. You can actually chill out. And that absolutely, there's actually a lot of science behind the adaptive process is fueled by that down regulation process occurring earlier in the training cycle post, uh, post, post activity. So you take this whole chain of events and Andy, not to, you know, pat our own selves on the back a little bit, but I think you have a lot of like firepower, right. And ammunition to, to essentially mandate it, right. Because there is such a huge, powerful advantage. And if you're going to spend so much time training, you might as well squeak out the extra like three or four days because it has an outside outsized impact. Well, and it's also directly related to, to, you know, a lot of the high stakes, you know, people get into something, a a big race like Western States or hard rock, and they think of it as their one shot, one, one, once in a lifetime thing, right? We've talked a lot about that. So why not do everything you can to be as well prepared as you can for that? And something like a training camp clearly does that. I think one of the, one of the challenges uh, is, you know, especially at this time of year, let's say the events in June or July or August, right? You, you're asking an athlete to think about their lives that far ahead of time, talk to their spouse about it, figure out how they're going to work through with their kids and school and graduations and life stuff. And at the same time, it's a little bit different. You know, we, we've talked about this in our, in our uh, continuing ed meetings, the timing of the training camp could be interesting. Some, some people, it would four weeks out from the event. Some people six weeks out from the event. I just say, if you can do it, yeah. <laughs> do yeah. it, you know, find the, find where you have four days. Yeah. If it happens to be six weeks, yeah. have, fine. You know, you don't want it to be two weeks out, but you know, find that time, carve that time out. And just like you have, you know, you have Tahoe 200 circled on your calendar right now in December. 
December, you know, have four day training camp in May circled on your calendar. Uh, I think not only does that make a huge sort of training difference, but also mentally it's like, okay, well, when I get to May, I'm going to be running, you know, 20 hours over four days. That's yeah. And like you said, no one would ever prescribe that. (laughs) You know, we would, we would say, why the heck are you doing 20 hours in four days? But you know, you go to a camp and it's like, you do it. (laughs) I do think that, go ahead, Darcy. Okay. I was just going to jump in and say, I agree with you, but I'm going to pose a devil's advocate question just based on principle. (laughs) Did you have any athletes that did their own private uh, running camp and you feel like it was ultimately detrimental to them over the past year? I, 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 I don't, I don't think so. Um, Here's a, here's a, here's a, here's a good, here's a good way to pose it though. If you can't come up with an, an example of, of it actually being detrimental, what would make it detrimental? Cause I don't think we talked about this in the conversation with you, you, I and Ryan, uh, Andy, but I do, I have my opinions on this and I'll kind of go through them a little bit, but what do you think would make it detrimental? I mean, I would say an injury is an obvious sure. one. Yeah, um, agree with you there. Yeah. The other, like softer ones, are maybe some mental burnout or not able to recover in time for said event. Yeah, just generally, like energetically, metabolically, <clears throat> or or the mental part of maybe that you, you that you had some goals for the three days and they fail to reach them, and it kind of gets in their head that uh, you know, let's just. We throw something out there, you know, you'd like to like to have a lot of energy by the end of this six hours. So make sure you pace to eat and so forth. And, and if you, if you fail at that in the course of the training camp, it could be detrimental when it comes to race day. So I do think there's some, there's some ways in which you want to structure the training camp to set the athlete up for success. Um, so that it, they don't come away with it saying, Oh my gosh, I barely survived 70 miles of four over three days. How am I going to do a hundred miles? I think though that like, I mean, kind of going back, back to how powerful they are. I kind of think that the way to answer Darcy's question directly, you have to really screw it up. Like, it's not something where it's like, yeah, you know, like, yeah, I did three hours, you know, this day instead of four hours or whatever. That's probably not all that material. Yeah. If you get injured, that's going to screw it up. If you do too close to the race, yeah, you're going to screw it up. It's really hard to pragmatically do too much. And somebody out there is going to send me some piece of hate mail because of this. But let me explain. (laughs) You can only run so many hours during the day. I mean, it's just like. Yeah, you can run at night too. And, you know, we do camps where we have overnight runs. That's part of the Leadville training camp. You know, they do one overnight run. You can certainly do do too much. But from a practical standpoint, as long as you're being reasonably intelligent about it, it, it's just just hard to do too much in that environment because you're kind of isolating yourself. Now, I I would say based based off of that kind of like that statement – trying to really shoehorn the camp in where you're not rearranging other aspects of your life could make it detrimental. So once again, the power, as mm-hmm. we mentioned before, is getting yourself in a more of a isolated, non, you know, uniform type of environment that you're used to every single day because you can handle the increase because you can handle the increase in workload. 
if you were just to do it in parallel of your overall life, then you're adding a shit ton of stress without removing some of the day-to-day stress. So I would consider that a little bit of an error. Once again, if we saw it on a training calendar without any context, everybody would kind of agree that it's, that it's nonsensical or untenable. So I, but I, I think the general theme is just to screw it up. You've got to like, like royally screw it up. It's not like a, uh, well over three days I did, you know, 16 hours instead of 15 hours. I don't think that those are the material like, uh, points of, of prescription that are going to make an impact. It's like the really big things. I don't know. Maybe there's another reason out there. I don't know. But like I said, I've kind of come to the same conclusion. Andy has, these are so powerful. You'd like, you got to command them early. Right. I think that that's, that's one part of it. You got to start putting them on. And I just went through my, I'm going to, how many, how many of them are compliant on this so far, Andy, percentage wise of the athletes that you're working with? Uh, I mean, they're, I would say, you know, at least half of them have said, yep, I'm, I'm doing it. And a quarter are, you know, cause literally this is just happening in real time. Right. Yeah, yeah, in, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and, and, and then a hand, maybe a quarter of them are, I got to check with my family kind of thing and I'll get back to you. And then the other quarter haven't figured out their race calendar yet. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I've given them the heads up, like once you figure out your race calendar, we're probably going to do this. Um, but I, I mean, I think, I, I mean, I, I use anecdotes of, you know, Western States athletes in particular and the success because you have this obvious thing where they, if they, if they're so inclined, they can actually go to an organized training camp that Western States puts on, or I use the example of our Memorial day training camps in Colorado Springs or the Leadville camp that's done uh, around uh, late, late June, July. And there's enough anecdotal evidence that, you know, I, I had athletes do this and they yeah. broke 24 hours or whatever that, it's it's not a hard sell um unless unless there's life stuff that gets in the way which is why you've got to do it now it's like okay well we're talking about a race in june let's see if you can find three to four days in early may early mid-may and get them on a calendar right now so i would say most people are i would say almost all are on board with the idea and whether or not they can get the practical part you know put into place i think is a is a, is a matter of, of their lives. I mean, I had a, I had an athlete last year who was, she definitely was convinced she lives in Colorado. She was committed to do her own thing. And, and, uh, you know, as, as Memorial, she was in Western States and as Memorial day got closer, she was like, Oh crap, I'm just going to get the flight and go out there. Right. I mean, she kind of talked herself <laughs> into it. Uh, <laughs> uh, and she's someone we both know Coop and she's a, she's a great person, but you know, and she had a good successful training weekend and a good successful race. So, I mean, I, I, I think sometimes the athlete does it for themselves. Um, I'm going to bring up two, two points here. One, I just forgot the second one. So I'm going to go to the first one. <laughs> this is what I get when I get too many things in my head all at once. Um, I do think that it, this kind of goes back to our earlier conversation of uh, what, what can kind of screw it up specific with some camps because they're in a, like a group environment, whether it's our camp that we have run in the past of Memorial day or the Western States camps are kind of the two examples because it's a highly social environment. Sometimes I don't think that that's the best for athletes that don't like, they just don't want to train in that type of social environment. And you guys all know those people, they just kind of want to train by themselves. And so speaking to the adaptive process that is reaped from this down regulation, you're actually, you're actually countering that to a large extent by having 300 people hang out at, you know, at Rucky Chucky 
after one of the Memorial Day training camp days and, oh, how did your run go? They don't want to deal with that. You know, so there are some athletes I think you have to kind of like make sure the situation um, going back to our original principle of is it an increase in overall life stress or a decrease in overall life stress in terms of the camp environment that you're putting them in. You have to actually kind of kind of come to kind of come to realize. So that might be another point of consideration uh, with everybody. I, I just, while we were going through this, I went through my athlete roster and I'm almost at a hundred percent of the athletes that are, uh, that already have their seasons lined up that have a camp or a placeholder for a camp already, already in place. I'm, I'm almost there. And the other ones will kind of tip over fairly quickly. And I wasn't even shooting for that. So once again, maybe it shows our, oh, that's the second thing I was going to mention. We have to recognize that I do think that there is a little bit of selection bias when we are correlating the percentage of people that have success that go to these camps that ultimately have success in their races. Those are the people that I think are just more committed with all due respect to everybody that are just more committed to the process overall. So yes, there is a camp catalyst but also the people that are going to those camps are going to self-select to do everything else that is going to be impactful to their race. They're going to have their pacers lined up, you know, two weeks in advance. And they're the ones that are going to cross every T and kind of like dot every I, like there's a little bit of selection bias in this. So we can't like pat ourselves on the back too much with this whole like camp model. I do think that those people are predisposed to getting it right anyway. Yeah, there's certainly the, the people that are also going to drag their butts through the sauna for 27 days, you know, the, to, do, to do the heat days. There's a direct correlation between the, those those groups of people, for sure. <laughs> you don't need 27 uh, days. I just recorded literally yesterday, I recorded a podcast with this, uh, with, uh, this guy, with this, this pair of people who did some research on hot water immersion and... Um, yeah, we made that point abundantly clear. <laughs> you don't need 27 That's days. Right. <laughs> you need maybe seven days. Okay, we're going to move on. Um, so once again, this goes from general to specific. Darcy had a really general thing. Andy had kind of a more of, more of a specific thing in a training camp. It's a really small piece. Mine actually goes more specific than that. This is like a like a, literally a daily thing. Um, I'm going to get I'm going to get more and more of my athletes on board with a consistent subjective monitoring um, procedure that they do that hopefully with most athletes, I can pair up with heart rate variability. So every day, as opposed to just saying, I felt good today, there's a system to those objective measurements that we put behind that type of objective feedback or sorry, subjective feedback. And the, the reason, the, 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 the kind of reason that, that I'm deploying this is a lot of athletes, first off, a lot of athletes need kind of like direction on how to give that subjective feedback. And, you know, I've said any number of times I put the subjective side in terms of rank order. I prioritize the subjective feedback higher than the objective feedback from any number of different things. So I'm always trying to get my athletes to do it. So having some sort of mechanism behind it is a is an incredibly powerful tool but the kind of the 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 bigger reason behind it is is that there's just more and more and more evidence that continues to come out every single year that points to when an athlete can synthesize everything that is going on into some sort of 
some sort of subjective quality, that that is going to be a bigger indicator, indicating arrow to do whatever you need to do, increase the load, decrease the load, give them a rest day or whatever, than anything else out there, resting heart rate, heart rate variability, your stupid recovery scores on your whoop strap and your readiness profiles and your aura ring and all this kind of stuff that we've tried to, that we've tried to derive through physiology and algorithms. If an athlete can competently, that's a, that's a key word, can competently synthesize how they're feeling into some sort of subjective monitoring system that provides a superior way to, to give training arrows. That's not to say that you can ignore the physiology because you should always look at the performance data and yes, you can use heart rate variability and I've had a number of athletes that are using uh, HR, HRV for training. There's no, you know, f- affiliation there. I just like their, I just like their app. It ports right into training peaks and I can kind of see everything on one. I have a lot of athletes use that, but trying to systematize the subjective monitoring piece, I guess, is the theme of everything is taking all of these things that are, you know, left, right, and center and, and, and organizing them. And I do have a little bit of a pattern for this and it's based off of the heart rate for training app where the the athletes who are not familiar with this essentially it's a it, it's an app where you can use the camera on your iPhone or Android I can't remember I think it's both anyway you use the camera on your smartphone to capture heart rate variability but I think the key and that's not anything that's all that novel but the the key mechanism or the key procedure behind that is is after you take that heart rate variability number and before it actually sh- before that app actually shows you the number, which is a really important part of it, so it doesn't bias you to the whole process, it then takes you through a list of questions. How was your sleep last night? Let's score that. And they use a little slider. Essentially, it makes it easy for athletes. How do you, is your are you stable? Or what, what does your routine look like? Can you focus on training? Routine, not routine. And there's five or six other other questions. I should pull it up and, and kind of go go through them all, but athletes can kind of go check it out on their own accord. But I guess the point is, is it brings some system to that subjective monitoring. And then after you go through all that subjective monitoring, then it tells you all the data, right? Versus the way that most people are using their, their wearables. They, and my freaking Garmin does this now. I wake up in the morning and now I get a morning report and it tells me without even asking me, what I should do, right? This, the way, taking that subjective stuff before you get the objective data, I think is the right way to do it because then you can integrate it all without any sort of bias versus initially seeing, oh, my resting heart rate's elevated. I must have be having a shitty day, day today. So I'm gonna score all these objective things in, in, in the tank. So that's my coaching movement going forward or my coaching change moving forward is I'm gonna start to incorporate more of a systematized approach to collecting all of these objective measurements, which I like and I use to a great degree. I just want a little bit more horsepower behind it because I, I just believe in the I believe in the value that they bring to the table in terms of helping monitoring and changing training whenever we need to change training. You mentioned a quick question on that. I mean, I think this is fascinating. And I do, I mean, you've turned us on to like the work of Marco Altani and with heart rate variability. And I think all of that stuff is really fascinating and interesting. But are you going to like yourself with your athletes determine like the six questions? And yeah, yeah. then that's what I'm talking the Likert, about. The, the Likert, yeah. So, so you know, it, it won't, it might not necessarily 
be the same six questions like that the app has is what you're saying. You would just, but you'd be working on something like that with your athletes. And also to what degree would it be a one to 10 scale, a one to five scale, a red light, yellow light, green light. Like, I, I, cause I, I, I don't want to add more confusion yeah. to my athletes by, you know, remember a few years ago, training peaks added that, you know, smiley face, <laughs> frown face thing on, on there <laughs> for the athletes to do. So, so could you dive in a little bit? Yeah. Like, how are you going to do that? Well, yeah. so the generalized approach is, is I want to use a system for each athlete that has the least amount of friction because the consistency matters more than the precision because we're turning these things over long periods of time, right? It's not like, unless something really dramatic happens, it's not like I'm going to look at one whatever score and do anything with that one particular thing. I'm just kind of trending it. And so with some athletes, that literally means going through Marco's HRV for athlete. And I already have five or six athletes uh, doing this, going through that. And we're just taking that part and parcel. I might not always, I might not always agree with the recommendation at the end of the day, but it ports all into training peaks. And here's the thing that I, that, that is paired with this. And this is coaching inside baseball, to be honest with you. Not many people are going to care about it, but me, because they're doing it in the morning, I have to be super on top of making sure that that's one of the first things that I look at for those athletes on that particular day. And either having a system where they text me, if anything's out of the ordinary that I can actually get prompted and look at it, or I have a system of, I know these athletes are doing this kind of first thing in the morning. So I need to be in tune with, I need to kind of capture that uh, right away. That's more of an, like a work organization thing that I have not gone through yet that I need to kind of not change, but just alter just the processes. What, when I do what essentially. So that's one, that's one kind of pathway to it. Another pathway to it is just to have the same things in training peaks and just use their stock. You know, you have any number of different metrics that you can use. I mean, the list is like in the forties, anywhere from like arm circumference to, you know, rating of perceived exertion to sleep quality, narrowing those down to four or five, and then just having those trend over the kind of over the course of time. Um, but the general strategy is, is I want to make it as frictionless as possible mm -hmm. and try and try mm -hmm. to capture how they're feeling, how they're sleeping and how much soreness they have. That's kind of the three, mm -hmm. the, the three big hit points. I might alter it a little bit for some athletes that really want to get into it. But if I can get those three, how they generally feel, are they tired or not? How literally, how much are they sleeping? A normal amount more or less almost use a better, worse, same type of gauge and how muscularly sore they are, musculoskeletally sore they are. If I can alchemize those three along with the training data, I think it's, I think it's really impactful. And all of this mm -hmm. is, you know, you're, I still don't think you, you're going to be able to alchemize those into a stoplight system. You know, I've seen mm -hmm. and commented and opined on those stoplight systems for 20 years. And as much as I appreciate those efforts for trying to turn either a whole host of objective data into one singular direction, do this or don't do this, right? Which is what a lot of those systems are trying to do. They're trying to alchemize a whole host of physiological data into a directional arrow, so to speak, or they're combining it with the subjective data and trying to do something like that. And that's what Marco's app does. And I, I, it does an okay job with it. And it's soft enough on the recommendations, avoid intensity today, right? It's kind of the, 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 the hero, you know, direction that you might take <laughs> with, with his app. Mm -hmm. I think that that's soft enough to, 
to, to, to warrant some merit, but I still don't think that it, I still think that it's, it's a, it's, I still think it's very much an art form to take all of those and to say, we're going to increase the training load. We're going to decrease the training load. We're going to change the training load, or we're going to take a day off, like whatever thing that you can change versus what's planned when you're integrating everything that's going on it's still a judgment call at the at the end of the day with a few kind of hard gates right you don't sleep for two nights in a row we're not working out your body temperature is you know one degree fahrenheit above normal we're not going to work out like those are kind of the rare situations it's more the I'm slightly sore and I didn't sleep as much as I should have last night and my last workout went bad. Should I take a rest day? Right. It's normally like three or four things that are either trending in the right direction or opposing each other that you have to make a decision on. And those are what we're, what we're doing as coaches. But the theme is, is systematizing the subjective measurements with a focus mm -hmm. on those three components that I mentioned earlier. I would encourage anybody out there, if you have no experience doing this and you want to get a better gauge out there, use the framework in Marco's app. You might not like everything and you might, some of it might be confusing to you, you know, that's fine. It, you can download the free version and get this, you know, kind of monitoring system. You can figure out what you like and don't like or what resonates with you and what doesn't, re what doesn't resonate with you. And then you can determine what to do with the data. That's the great thing about it is you don't have to take every, every mm -hmm. single thing with a hundred percent value. You can take and Marco and I talked about this on the podcast. He's like, if I was coaching trail runners, I would put a lot more emphasis on muscular soreness as opposed to, mm -hmm. you know, some other, some other metric, because it's such a good indicator of, you know, fatigue and stress and workload because we're going up and down. Most of the time we're going up and down hills and mountains. And when you increase that, you're going to see an increase in muscular soreness. So so anyway, uh, th that would be my encouragement to the people that are listening that are not used to doing this. And if I have an absolute talking about Andy's absolutes of putting the training camps in there, that's the first thing when I take on new athletes, put in your post activity comments, put them in. And now it's going to be put in your post activity comments and let's use the metric section to start to systematize it. So from a pragmatic point of view of how I'm going to change my coaching practice, I'm going to layer on that metrics system. So in our coaching ed calls, you guys are going to see the metrics, uh, the, uh, metrics square on the dashboard show up a lot more on my uh, athlete schedules. <laughs> <laughs> what has been your athletes that you've posed this to? What has been their reaction thus far? It's trying to figure out which ones to use. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, I think that most of them do a good job of, because I hammer home the post activity comments so much, I felt good. I felt bad. Like almost kind of like that binary, like this went good or up, like if you want to put it in three categories, this one good, good, average, bad. And they do a really good job of making the workout or, or categorizing, categorizing the workout that way. It's getting every, it's getting the few other non-workout components that I think is that that's what I'm kind of like layering on. If you want to think about it from a true differences standpoint. So yeah, most of them have just been. I'm already doing this on the workout side. Let's just translate it to like life. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's that big of a cost. It's like 60 seconds every day that it takes you to run through it. And, and I, I, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be impactful because most of the athletes that I'm, that I'm working with here, here's how I've been able to 
quantify it for people. Not that I need to get people on board, but it's the way that I've explained it is that when I have all of that information in, a, in, when they do a really good job of, of putting in their post activity comments and I get some of this other subjective feedback, either via text or whatever other disorganized system that I'm trying to organize, it makes a difference of about two to three workouts every couple of months. Meaning I change the workout. Well, I'd say that's material though. I mean, if I not, not sorry of the key workouts. So I have eight workouts a month, right? Let's just do the quick Mac eight workouts a month, 16 workouts over a two over a two month period. So two a week, right? Two interval workouts or whatever. Let's just say it's 20 to make the math easy. If I'm changing two of those, that's 10%. And I think that that's material. If I'm changing 10% of what I would call the really impactful workouts, the hard workouts and or the long workouts, if I change or refine 10% of those. I, I think mm-hmm. that that's material over, lo- over a long period of time. And that, so, and I think that that is highly realistic just based off of the athletes that I do have that are using Marco's app consistently where I do see that information. I for sure am changing a couple things every couple months with those athletes. So if I extrapolate that into even a less sophisticated system or whatever, I think that it's worth it. And I wouldn't make a change if it weren't, if it wasn't worth it. I mean, we've all talked about things that are impactful, right? I I think that the, I think that I can relatively, uh, I can quantify, I can quantify this fairly easily because I know the number of workouts that I'm changing. This might make my feedback loop a lot tighter instead of planning out two to three weeks. I'm only going to plan out a week. That's a theme. If I broaden my coaching career out and I use like a decade long lens, that's actually a theme that's emerged is I used to plan out like six or eight weeks and then I plan out four weeks and now I plan out two or three weeks. Mm. It's like every five years I go by, I realize how poor I, how shit I am at forecasting must pass my own nose. <laughs> the article I wrote uh, for the last blog, the road trip with the, uh prior Olympian. Uh, that's how she prescribes her athletes workouts is weekly. Yeah. She never goes beyond a week at a time. Yeah. yeah. I think there's something to that. Cause I, I'm just learning more and more. I can't forecast out, out all that much. I mean, people need, people need workouts planned from a practical point of view. They need to know, like, do I need to go to the track on Tuesday? Do I need to drive to the trailhead on Thursday? And how do I arrange childcare and stuff like that? I think for elite athletes, you can use a week long loop because they can more, they can, they're supposed to be able to rearrange their lives around training with the exception of like planning training camps and stuff like that. You need to have those somewhat in some sort of master architecture, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot to even using, once again, going back to Marco's app, even using that to alter what you are going to do 30 minutes from when you shut that app down. Like I know coaches that have that workflow with their elite athletes, like it's kind of like that granular, we're going to tune the workout based off of this. I think the medium is one to two weeks and then you alter for anything dramatic. So that's what I'm going to change. We got a whole host of things, not being perfect, putting more, putting more of an emphasis on training camps and increasing the emphasis of subjective monitoring that like hit all levels. There's also, it's, it's, but it's, it's also an interesting pattern to the three things, right? Because they are sort of um, 
we're, we're doing something differently, but we're also uh, being a little being a little bit more top down about it, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, you know, when when you think of the theme, right? You know, Darcy's going to be like, you know, calling people on this perfectionism in an inappropriate way, and and I'm going to be like, no, find those three or four days and get it done, and and Coop's going to be like, you know, let's let's talk about the subjective stuff and systematize it. I mean, I think. I think for us as coaches, it's we're it is often a dance, right? We're we're we we want we need to listen to the athletes. We need to understand where they're coming from and meet them where they're coming from. And it's why it's not a static training program that that any of us offer. And at the same time, we also have to from time to time put stakes in the ground uh, in the best interest of our athletes' success. But I mean, increasingly, as as Darcy said at the beginning around issues of life coaching and and mental health and as we're continuing to crawl out of the pandemic i mean these are all roles that we play so i think the themes that have emerged out of each of these three topics actually have have more uh, you know more in common than we might have thought and of course for the listeners out there we didn't know what these were ahead yeah. of time we you know coop just said come up with some topics and we'll bat them around so yeah. it's pretty cool actually <laughs> Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's a really good place to leave it too. Um, I expected, I expected nothing less than a variety of opinions on this, especially given you guys' uh, experience uh, coaching and how long I've worked, with, how long I've worked with with each of you individually. This is awesome. We can go on for forever. For the listeners out there, a big genesis. We're going to do more of these coaching roundtables. And a big genesis of this, I have to give Andy a lot of credit for because when I uh, when I let Andy and Stephanie take over uh, the podcast without any restriction, true story, right? I literally hucked it over the fence to you. I got so much good feedback from it that it made me take a step back and and realize that I need to bring in more of our coaching voices because we have, we do have such an incredible ecosystem and I don't need to be solely reliant kind of on myself to produce all the content and the mainly like the research crowd that I, that, that I bring on. So, you know, you got yourself into this mess, Andy, you're going to have to come back as a guest and all the other coaches <laughs> are going to have to come back as guests for a long period of time. And, uh, we have every, we have, uh, you and Steph to thank for that. Well, and a, a, a big plug for Darcy's writing in the blog. If you haven't, if listeners haven't been on the CTS blog in a while, I mean, I think there's at least 12 to 15 entries in the last year, all of which Darcy are, you know, really provocative and, and, you know, insightful and quick, quick reads, you know, with a lot there. So uh, go check that out if you haven't. You know who I vote to be on one of your podcast soons is Mr. Jim Rutberg. Oh. <laughs> has he been on the podcast yet? He uh, talked about a guy that has a way with words. He likes to hide behind them. I think he uh, may not be a fan of uh, being on the camera, even yeah. less than myself. Well, so those are the, the listeners who don't know Jim Jim Rutberg. First off, is a great friend of mine. He introduced me to my wife, and I owe that debt of gratitude for forever. Uh, but he's been a longtime colleague of mine. He's one of the first coaching colleagues that I kind of ever had when I came into the industry. He's also the co-author of Training Essentials for Ultra Running and a New York Times bestseller. How many people do you guys know who's a New York Times bestseller? Back when that actually meant something, uh, he has authored many books. 
one of which made the New York Times bestseller list, which I don't know what the equivalent to that is right now or if there is an equivalent, but trust me, it was a big deal. Very talented writer. Um, and he has been on the podcast before when the second edition of the book came out, uh, we brought him, he, Corinne and I kind of batted around how the, how the second edition came to light and what was new and different. And mainly as a gigantic sales plug for, for, for the book that when it, when it came out, which was about a year ago today, actually, as we're recording this, but yeah, maybe I'll bring him on just to shoot the shit with him because he had, he has, he does have a really interesting perspective, just seeing how athletes have evolved over years and not only uh, base and, and, and how all athletes have evolved over years. So from the elite athletes to the time crunched athletes, which he's kind of carved out a niche in that to even like the athletes over 50, like he's got such huge domain expertise on that, that, and I was recently reminded uh, quick, of that. Quick, yeah. Quick personal story on Ruddy too. Like recently uh, he, I posted on social media that I did my first ever gravel bike race and he immediately emailed me and said, Oh, you've got to write a blog about it. You know, of ultra runner doing gravel. And I mean, it was, he was so, he was like an excited little kid and, and he's like, I don't care. Just, and Darcy knows it. Just, just, just put together, just put together some paragraphs and I'll make it pretty, you know, yeah, he's, <laughs> it was great. Like, that man is an artist. Yeah. I, like, he really I appreciate is. your uh, compliments, Andy, on the blog, but Jim Rutberg, uh, owes, uh, most, most credit goes to Jim because he will take something that's not grand and make it grand. <laughs> yeah. So, shout- so yeah, Coop, get him, get him. Let's get Ruddy on the podcast. <laughs> shout out to Ruddy. And uh, just as a tease, there may or may not be a new uh, product coming out that Ruddy and I are collaborating on that hopefully in about a month's time from when this podcast is released, we'll be out in the wild that leverages Ruddy's expertise in making us sound way smarter than we actually are. Let's put it that way. I'll tell you guys about it in the coaching meeting. <laughs> Thanks you guys for, for coming on the podcast. This is enough after, after podcast banter. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, uh, appreciate it. Thanks. Coop. Thanks a lot. Coop. All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Darcy and AJW for coming on the podcast today. As we made mention of in the latter stages of the podcast, this coaching roundtable format is going to be one that I just do more of. That was a big piece of feedback that you all gave me when AJW and Steph took the podcast over, and I am going to take that to heart. We're going to have many coaching roundtables, both big and small, big picture and very nuanced picture of actionable things that you can take into your day-to-day training. So I appreciate the heck out of all the listeners out there for letting me know what you guys, the people, the athletes out there actually want. Because at the end of the day, this podcast is nothing without you. I don't use this podcast in any sort of monetary sense. It costs me money every single month to produce. I intentionally do not take on any sponsors or endorsements of any kind. And that is absolutely 100% so I can deliver the best information that is unadulterated to you, the listeners. I don't want to be beholden to promote any sort of company out there and just say what is on my mind at any one point in time. So you all can help this podcast out further by not only giving me the feedback of what you want, but also share it with your friends. If you think that some of the content in this podcast is valuable, is actionable to your friends and training partners, hit that share 
share button within your podcast app, whether it's Google Podcast or Apple Podcasts, however you actually listen to it, and let them know how awesome the content is in the Coopcast. I appreciate that very much. That is it for today, folks. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.